0: Today we're at the end of Isaiah 1, where God is continuing kind of a legal case against the people of Judah. Here we see another call to repentance couched in a vivid description of what is happening in real time, present time for them, coupled with a consequence of what will happen if the people don't turn to God. The opening of this section, God laments about the city. That's something for us to think about as we begin Because the city is close to God's heart. Humankind is is created in a garden, but the culmination of all of life happens in the new Jerusalem, a city full of God's beauty and abundance. But the Jerusalem here in Isaiah's time had degenerated into something kind of unrecognizable from what it had uh, been when it began few cities start out being places where the worst elements of society take it captive. But when we think about that, isn't that sometimes what happens? In our minds, we see pictures of cities or pieces of them that break our hearts. War-torn Damascus. Bullet-riddled neighborhoods in Chicago. A densely packed slum in Mumbai the flood of unlivable water in Lagos, Nigeria, air pollution in Bangladesh, the stronghold of addiction in Cincinnati. These are all cherished places to God. And of course, they are more than those things, but they've become known for those things. And we know that cities began often in great promise to be centers of commerce and art and learning and beauty but due to poverty and war and racism and neglect and stolen resources and bad planning and government control and sin places become cities can become places that people avoid instead of places to thrive in. Isaiah is showing a picture here really of human selfishness. God is angry because of the inward focus that has been on themselves and how this has played out. And the damaged nature of the city is evident to all. Isaiah says that Judah had been full of justice and righteousness, had been built into the center of their civic life. But ignoring that identity has brought them to ruin. And God has become sorrowful and angry. And on a much smaller, much, much smaller level, We understand this. We go to cities where windows are boarded up and buildings are empty and there's a lot of crime and it's unsafe and the beauty has been pillaged and disregarded because of human excess and the people are downtrodden with despair. And here we read how God plans to clean up the city, which is a metaphor for the people who are in essence creating an unlivable space for themselves quite apart from the Lord's presence. So Isaiah 1:21 through 31. How the faithful city has become a prostitute. She that was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Her silver has become dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not defend the orphan, and the widow's cause does not come before them. Therefore, says the sovereign, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, surely I will pour out my wrath on my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy, alloy, Okay. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be destroyed together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For you shall be unashamed of the oaks in which you delighted, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. The strong shall become like tinder, and their work like a spark. They and their work shall burn together, with no one to quench them. Let us pray. Lord, we humbly open your word today. Open our hearts and minds, spirit, to hear your truth and your love. Amen. This week, I found a new translation which might be helpful for us in Isaiah. It's called the International Children's Bible Version. (laughs) Truthfully, I'm unsure how many children are going to be reading through the major prophets. But for those of us who can get a little lost, it's going to be a helpful guide. Listen to how they begin our passage today. The city of Jerusalem once followed the Lord, but she is no longer loyal to the Lord. So for clarity's sake and to do what Jesus tells us to do, which is to be like little children, sometimes I'm going to give you an ICB translation and sometimes I'll give you the Hebrew just to keep things fair between the very scholarly and the not yet educated. Now remember last week we talked about how the people were quiet quitting Yahweh and how they had turned to performance-based religion instead of being alive in him. In this section, God is expressing grief over the people. So we're going to break the words down into three pieces, the unfaithfulness of the people, the expectation God had, and the plan for the future. So we already began our time talking about the selfishness of the people and how God is stepping in to intervene. And one element to pay attention to in Isaiah is the poetic nature of the writing and the images evoked in the verses. The scripture gives pictures when talking about the people wandering, um, wandering from God that are striking. Now first, there's a kind of a shocking image of a prostitute. Now, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you this isn't my favorite image. I'm going to own that. And um, partially it's because I don't really love how the city is portrayed as a sinful woman, Um, but it's shown in Scripture in different ways. And so upon reflection, let's just say that this is a metaphor for an unfaithful person in their marriage. This is very like the story of the prophet Hosea whose wife, Gomer, leaves him to be with others. But we might also think about the prodigal son who was not faithful to his family and charged with wanton behavior. So let's go back to the children's version of not being loyal and someone giving all of their attention meant for Yahweh to other places. And we know that this is false gods as well as looking to other nations for protection and for favor. Another picture we see here is how the silver has become dross. In scripture, this is always a sign of impurity. When silver is melted, the impurities separate and rise to the top, and then that's removed so that the metal can become valuable. But this is an interesting switch that Isaiah does here, because Jerusalem was already pure, was already perfection, but had become contaminated. And there's a comparison here also of wine. Once rare, perhaps exquisite, now they're watered down and not drinkable. Now, the princes here mentioned are the leaders whom God calls rebels. And the leaders are greatly responsible for the condition of the city. And God accuses them of stealing and bribery and running after money. While there are people who need help, the vulnerable children, the, the, the lonely senior citizens, they too are busy filling their pockets. The leaders aren't caring and they're not leading people to care. Old Testament professor Dr. John Oswalt, he's also a pastor, shows here how we see a series of contrasts between what the Lord originally intended for the people and what actually had happened. God intended faithfulness and got unfaithfulness. He intended righteousness and got murder. Instead of silver, there is dross. Instead of pure wine, there is a diluted mess. Instead of good rulers, there are rebels. Instead of defenders of the helpless, there are takers of bribes. See, the people have been unfaithful to the God who blessed them and never left their side. And the story that keeps getting repeated in all of the Old Testament is how Yahweh rescued the people from slavery, sustained their lives in the wilderness, gave them a land of their own, and gave them so, so much favor over all the other nations and all the other people on earth. And they were meant to love him first. And maybe like the city mentioned here, they started out strong and then became unrecognizable from where they had been. And we understand that. That's the story of our lives too. Putting themselves first caused them to forget about Yahweh and the other people they were meant to care about. And their actions have made them what verse 24 says is enemies of God. And remember, enemies are not people that God hates. Enemies of God are people who have turned their back on him purposefully, who have ignored him. When we watch courtroom proceedings, or maybe when we've been part of them ourselves, the accusations can be relentless. And some of what we've read in the first chapter are hard for us to hear, and we wonder how Judah is listening to them this week I thought about Paul's teaching in 1st Timothy on how some people had gotten a seared conscience from a hot iron. They'd abandoned the faith and become hypocritical liars. In other words, their souls had stopped being responsive to God. They'd been burned by their experiences or their choices. They'd lost their ability to be sorry or remorseful for their actions. And then I thought about people maybe that we've been with who have been so checked out that they can't really even understand reality for whatever reason and how hard it is to talk to them. And when I think about how God is talking to these people who are not going to turn back to him, I think about that. He's trying to bring them back and they're just not really getting it or understanding or they're so bitter, they just won't. And then as God is speaking here, we think about how sensitive we are to the Spirit. How sensitive are we? How rebellious are we? Next, we see God's reaction to the unfaithfulness of the people. There is sorrow here, but there is also anger. In verse 24, three names for God are given, really strong ones. The Sovereign, the Lord of hosts, the Mighty One of Israel— I was thinking that if this were a movie, this would be the time that God would rise up and the people would start running. Because God is serious. The Lord says the wrath is going to be poured out on his foes who have forsaken him, and God is going to turn his hand away from them. Now, I know that many have a difficult time with the violence found in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to defend God, because I don't need to. And I'm not going to find fault with it. I'm going to say that as we honestly wrestle with this, because it's really a good thing to wrestle with, an important thing, we have to remember how we do have a limited and finite perspective on what is happening. Like last week, I'm going to invite you to turn this around a little bit. Because if God came to you and said that his people were doing these things, what would you tell him? If he said, give me... I should do, what would you say? If these were your people, what would you do? And then I think, well, don't we go out to bring new economic life to blighted areas? Don't we go out to try and lift people up who are entrenched in poverty and addiction and oppression and lost in the ramifications and unfair, even bad and deadly choices? Don't we go out to try and beautify and conserve landscapes that have been ravaged by careless use? Don't we sometimes have to use tough love? If we do these things, how much more will God, in all of his power and wisdom and love, do to lift up dead people and places, giving them a chance to trust in his care, knowing some will just not respond. The names here of God mean that he is the source of everything that exists. He is omnipotent. God is the absolute ruler who has the right to exercise his unrestricted power in any situation. And one thing that shows up for us here is how God is not neutral or tolerant of all behavior. And since we believe Jesus is the word at the beginning, we know that Jesus is fully present in this conversation that's going on in Isaiah. And we might think about what it was like again when he came to earth. Because even Jesus, who is considered the most unconditionally loving God, has limits. He drove out the money changers. He had harsh words for those who use religion. For power and profit, he repeatedly tells sinners to repent and works to bring healing spiritually, not just physically. This passage is exhorting the people to see how they've been working against God, and how they're harming others and themselves. It's a reminder of how believers are not meant to separate out personal holiness and acts of mercy. In the Old Testament, justice is synonymous with righteousness. Righteousness. The Lord calls us to both holy living and loving actions. To ignore one is to not act as God would have us. And the church, historically, hasn't always done great with this. We've thought about which is more important. But Jesus did both. Jesus spent time with the Father in prayer. Jesus spent time in solitude and silence. Jesus spent time in the synagogue, and then Jesus went out and brought Jesus in God's love and did all kinds of acts of mercy. This is a call to remind us to find the narrow way of having both relational and social integrity before God. Because when we separate them, we are neglecting part of how we are created. One last thought here about this whole idea is maybe saying how we don't like the God of the Old Testament is code for saying we don't like discipline. Discipline. Sometimes we need God's tender mercy, and sometimes we need the discipline of the Lord, and we don't decide what we get. God does. And everywhere we have been, like the band sang this morning, there is Jesus. Amen. The last piece we see here is how renewal is coming. Judgment is going to be a purifying process. It's going to be painful. It's not spelled out how long it will take. The hope is not just in God's discipline, but also in the people's response to God's discipline. Again, Isaiah puts together our hearts and our actions by saying in verse 27, how Zion will be redeemed by justice and by those who repent in righteousness. There'll be a smelting to remove dross and a scrubbing with lye. And those who return to God will be restored in the city And the city will be called righteous and faithful. But the end verses paint a different picture of those who don't accept what God is offering. They will face ruin. They will be like an oak with withered leaves, a garden without water, and ultimately wood which burns up quickly because it's already dead. God is intending to rescue them from themselves. They are being offered Rescue, they're being offered salvation. They're not left to die, although in the process of restoring their lives, it's going to show up for them like suffering. We're going to be talking a lot about this. This reminds of the pain that we have when we're separated from God and the harkens to the pain that Jesus is going to suffer on the cross. In Lent, we want to think about the sorrow Jesus had on the cross. We want to think about the pain that he suffered. For these people and for us and for everybody throughout history. Jesus takes on every suffering, all the sorrow. And the seriousness of going our own way here can't be understated. Isaiah is demonstrating how God desires for the process of cleaning up the city to have a good effect. This is not discipline for discipline's sake or because God wants to show off his power and his might. It's meant to help people get to a new place. It's about transformation. God wants to be reunited with them, not to harm them. And left to themselves, the end result is certainly going to be worse. Isaiah is giving a part of the verdict that nobody wants to hear. These are not words of false comfort. He's not softening the blow. The future is going to be difficult for everyone, including those, especially those who ignore God. But there's nothing in scripture that says everything's going to be fine and nobody has to change. That's not how scripture goes because God loves us. He disciplines us and brings us back. Our holy and gracious God desires change in our inner being and then his love flows out of our lives to those around us. Often on this first Sunday of Lent, the church focuses in on the text about Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit, going out to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Yesterday, in a daily email I get, uh, entitled, Wake Up Call, wake up! The author was talking about how much we seek satisfaction in our lives. We're satisfied when we have a good food or drink We're satisfied when our relationships are doing well, when our children are happy. We're satisfied by good work, productive work, and good family, and beautiful places, and travel that satisfies our soul. But often, in our daily patterns, we choose to exist only to be satisfied. We live to find contentment from what it is that we have here. And in that wanting to be satisfied, we crave more and more of it to ease the ache of our hearts or the emptiness of our souls or the void where God so wants to be. And the point of the email was a reminder that Jesus was full of the Spirit, that Jesus was satisfied and content and sustained by the Holy Spirit as he goes to be tempted, that his human spirit, was full of God's presence. And let me tell you, that was challenging to me. As I thought about, what does that mean in my life? The ways that I try so hard to be so content or at peace or satisfied. And then all of a sudden, we're thrown into the wilderness. What do I got? My prayer is that we would have the Spirit. In this passage, Isaiah is talking to people who have looked so many different other places to be satisfied in their lives because they no longer felt satisfied with God. And we understand that. We know that feeling. But they kept going and sought experiences that would give them meaning or ignite in them a thrill again for living But in so doing, they lost their way. And it's evident in these words that something changed in the people. They're not what they used to be. And when we are no longer content in the Lord, when we're no longer satisfied with what God has to offer us, the choices that we make will wear on us. We think that they won't. We think that they're going to help us, but they don't. This is a picture of a city that's out of control. And the only way through that is to trust God in what he offers. And so what does that look like in your life and in mine? Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.